0: Welcome to Diversity Beyond the Checkbox, sponsored by the Diversity Movement, where we discuss diversity, equity, and inclusion topics with leaders that make our world a more welcoming and supportive place for all. We can't wait to share with you what's coming next, but in this compilation episode, we're looking back on the conversations we've had with season four business leaders, entrepreneurs, and authors who shared their inspiring stories, perspectives, and lessons around inclusive cultures, self-discovery, and courageously stepping up to do incredible things. So without further ado, here are some of my favorite moments from Diversity Beyond the Checkbox season four. There's a a couple of ways to go with bias. You know, there's the negative bias, but then you've also got the positive bias, right? And and for those of us who have interviewed, and I'm sure there are many of the folks that are on in this bowl right now that have interviewed candidates, you know, if you find that you have something in common, right? Whether that be a school or a hobby or whatever, you're spending half of the conversation Talking about that thing you've got in common and really haven't evaluated if this candidate is, you know, qualified to do the job. So there's there's bias that can go um, either way. But anything else that we want to talk about with regard to recruiting bias, and then I also want to get into some strategies that. Both of you recommend to mitigate that bias all the way from job description to onboarding. So I'm interested in your thoughts there. Take off
1: your zip code. Take off your address. There's no need for anyone to have their resume with their address on it at this point. There should be no zip codes. There should be your phone number and your email. So, Mm -hmm. I mean, I used to have positions. Let's say I had a position years ago, years and years ago in Connecticut. They'd be like, oh, we're not going to hire someone from Brooklyn. Brooklyn to Connecticut. I mean, the amount of people that I could have placed over the last however many years that were in San Francisco, that the job was in Chicago, and they wouldn't even consider them. I think there, you know, that I'm a huge person about not sharing. I don't know how many people know that about me. Stop oversharing. Mm. 100%. If you're pregnant, don't tell them you don't owe it. That is no one's business if you're pregnant. You don't have to advertise your age. Age discrimination is a huge problem. Mm-hmm.
0: And it's so interesting how you have to learn to lead in a different way, to message in a different way, to inspire in a different way than, you know, the Gen Xers like myself. Um, it's, it's totally different and you've got to learn and adapt and, and grow with these, these younger generations because the, the way they think about things, what they prioritize, how they want to align their values, their personal values with where they work, how they shop, it's, it's different. And um, you know, I think that organizations now are, are moving in that direction and understanding that that's, that's what's happening in our society. Um, but love that you're on the cutting edge of that uh, with, with the number of uh, millennials and, and Gen Zers you have at your organization. That's fantastic.
2: Well, one of the things that, you know, I would say to your point, a number of years ago, it might have sounded really soft and squishy. But we instituted the concept of feeling free to be yourself at work. Mm-hmm. And as a key lever to measure for, for inclusion, because it's, it's pretty telling whether yeah. or not you can be or not, and how that impacts things. Absolutely. And to our Xers and boomers that we work with, you know, at first when that idea came about, by the way, thank goodness they said yes when, when we posed it. But, and, and, and then the business benefits of that have been tremendous. But the, um, then millennials, now there's millennials and Zers, they think nothing of that. That's, you know, that's baseline stakes. I better be able to be myself Mm -hmm. or I would go work work someplace else across the street. And to be honest with you, we know that we get a better work product and a better work experience, better teaming experience. People get to feel free to be themselves.
0: Absolutely. You know, I read a study recently, I think it was an Oxford study that said that happy employees are 13 percent more productive. And that's like getting an extra hour every day. Of, of productivity, which means more profitability for your business. So those happy employees are working harder, working better, and it benefits your bottom line. So that's, that's such an important part of the equation. Thanks for sharing that. Karen. It's too easy just in general to choose that employee or that you know, colleague from your network to, Mm -hmm. um, you know, run your part of your business or, or promote from, you know, your group of of friends or or your internal network And the same, if you think about vendors and suppliers Mm -hmm. um, businesses that you support, you know, how do we begin to be more intentional about how we're thinking about that and, and how do we elevate these designers of color and di- just diverse designers in general within the space, because um, you know, I think it's two percent that uh, are designers of color. Is that right? That's correct. Um, so how do we how do we start to begin to think about that and change that, Ashley?
3: That is such an amazing question, and I'm really proud of you for for working to find diverse designers for your own home. And you're right; it is incredibly difficult because what we see is that these designers well i guess we'll start at the very beginning so the biggest thing is that there aren't individuals of color going to design school period mm-hmm. so this is just not something that happens we had a conversation with the university maybe two or three days ago and in their 14 years they have had one person who was african-american go through their oh, program my. wow i mean it's it's shocking and. A lot of times it's because these individuals are first time college attendees Mm
4: -hmm. and
3: their parents do not support them going down this career path because they don't see it as a viable option for them to be successful in life. They want them to do business or accounting, something that they know their child will be able to have a sustainable job in. And there's so many amazing things that you learn through design, right? Supply chain management, negotiation, communication project management, but they're not promoting that when they go to recruit. And so I'm actually going to start speaking to some high schools about how to get their youth involved in some type of design program as they go into college ready courses. And Mm -hmm. just seeing that that is a viable option for individuals of color is to be a designer and to help their parents understand all of the valuable skills that they'll learn through
5: it.
6: Supposedly they're they're going to re-look at this, but Mm -hmm. it's it's too late for this Olympics. Mm -hmm. And there is a longer-term impact because when you look at the statistics, Blacks from age 5 to 24 are exponentially more in danger of drowning Mm -hmm. than uh, their peer groups.
0: That's right. Well, less than half of Black children, Bob, can swim you're a cultural historian. So let's dig into this a little bit. You know, it's going back to the exclusion of black people and, you know, allowed in the swimming pools.
6: Yeah. In, in right? fact, even, you know, well past when Jim Crow shouldn't have been taking place. I mean, because you and I both know we've been in the North enough to know oh, that's right. there are towns that might've have well have been in, you know, Jim Crow, Alabama that are in <laughs> yeah. the North blacks in the, 1900s into the in, in probably into the 60s were, were barred from, from swimming, mm-hmm. public swimming pools. So not only is it that children today don't get swim education, mm-hmm. but they're never taught because their parents don't know how to that's swim. That's exactly right.
0: That's exactly right. Because that's how we learn, right? Our parents teach us how to swim. Yep. But if your parents don't know how to swim because their parents didn't know how to swim because their parents weren't allowed in the pools, Mm-hmm. That's why we have that issue. And and this is just an example of how systemic inequities affect people generation by generation.
6: Yeah. Uh, I looked at a USA swimming statistic, and the latest statistics were from 2019. Only 1.4% of year-round swimmers, so that would be mainly competitive swimmers, yeah. were black and only 3.5% Hispanic. And it was primarily lack of access to a pool. Mm -hmm. You know, so when black kids are dying or teenagers are dying in drowning incidences, it's usually in places where there aren't lifeguards. Mm -hmm. So in some areas, there aren't lifeguards in the public pools, even in hotels, this is happening. That's right. Yeah. And so black kids want to jump in the water too. I mean, you're, you're basically, you're holding their head under the water if you don't create a system in which that education is universal, Absolutely. or at least much more widespread than it is now.
0: Being a black woman officer is tough even though around the country, more Black women chiefs are being elected, including one just named in Raleigh, Estella Patterson, who's replacing retiring chief Cassandra Deck Brown, who is also a Black woman. What are some of the challenges of being a Black woman officer? To be heard.
7: And I I was very happy to hear about the news of Estella getting that job. I met her several years ago and she is very good people to be it's one thing to be in the room but it's also another to be heard while you're sitting at the room it's another one to be maybe at the table but to it's one thing to be at the table let's say you're having dinner but it's another thing to be served a plate so Mm -hmm. it's like you gotta make sure and break the barriers of stereotypes because i can disagree with something and i can have an attitude Mm -hmm. or i'm intimidating or aggressive all these terms, which are nothing but microaggressions. And it took me a while to figure that out because you can let that stuff get you down because you're always trying to change yourself to appease others. Yeah. So just understanding and being true to yourself and knowing what you're doing is right. If you can stand on that, it doesn't matter. You go forward and you keep doing it because there's been many times where I felt like I literally was a robot because you're always, okay, how does my face look? Am I doing this? Am I doing that? And you just have to constantly do that. I don't think everybody realizes what it's like to constantly feel like you're constricted on everything that you do. Mm -hmm. While others can go and they can have a bad day. But as a female, I can't show emotion like that. If I were to start crying over something, what is that going to be perceived as? Even though it's a genuine emotion and I want you to know I feel things, Mm -hmm. if a woman does it, it's completely different. And if a black woman does it, it's completely different. Mm. So it's all these different things when you carry marginalized characteristics. So being black and being a female, it has been a struggle. You have imposter syndrome that you may fight through, especially when you're at that higher level.
8: Companies uh, and business in general have been working on um, diversity on de and i for the better part of 30 years. And i remember you know when i started my career at uh, a very large company uh, it didn't take long for me to ask you know why aren't there more people who look like me and the question i i would get the i mean the answer I would get is well it's a pipeline issue right and so now it's 30 plus years later and i think to myself how can it still be a pipeline issue haven't those people grown up? Mm-hmm. so yeah you know so so what that says to me is that we can't just look at diversity equity and inclusion i think we have to take a step to the left to say mm-hmm. what is feeding that issue and that's really why I focus on equity and justice in my work with APCO Worldwide, because companies need to look at their systems and their structures yes. and what is in the way of keeping people, and particularly people of color, people who are underrepresented, You know, what is keeping us from ascending to the top levels of the organization? And so we have all heard about the business case for diversity, which I think is great, but it doesn't matter if it doesn't work. And also when you think about equity and justice, that also means that all of your ideas are valued. You're valued. You're not just included, but you belong, right? So equity and justice is about creating equity and justice for everybody, right? Not just one set of people or one group of people because you know people often will say you know we have to correct the system and, mm-hmm. and i want like to remind people the system works exactly as it was intended to benefit one group of people and to disadvantage another group so it's not about just looking at that system it's about dismantling that system and creating a new one that is built on equity and justice. And I think in your company, if you can center your company and your company culture on equity and justice, you'll be the winners in the war for talent, in the war for customers, and in the war for reputation.
0: You often credit your success in part to having a growth mindset. Can you tell us about what that means and why that's so important?
9: Absolutely. Yeah. I think about a growth mindset and that's the idea for me of being coachable, being hungry and recognizing that you can always learn something from somebody else and you can always learn something from every single situation. And I think if you, come to situations and come to conversations and come to relationships with a growth mindset that's actually a very inclusive approach kind of an others first mindset what can you learn what can you take away how can you improve not only yourself but improve the relationship improve the outcomes i think it's incredibly valuable and I, and I look for that when I am looking for prospective talent for the PJ of America team, individuals who have a growth mindset versus a, a fixed mindset.
0: And Sandy, that that's so great. Tell us, how do you know when someone has a growth mindset? What are you looking for in those interviews?
9: Well, one example, and I was reflecting upon this yesterday. We have ten summer interns at the PJ of America. And one in particular, Taylor Green. I, I was telling her yesterday that I think one of her greatest attributes is her growth mindset. And she posed kind of that same question. Well, you know, why did you say that? Or kind of, how did you know that about me? And it's because she regularly asks questions. And they're not transactional questions, or she's just going through the motions or trying to put the spotlight on herself. They're really thoughtful, reflective questions on whatever the subject matter is, and maybe why we're doing something or how we might wanna approach something something differently. So that's a key thing that I look for, Jackie, is somebody who is truly inquisitive, reflective, and wants to deeply understand the why behind something.
10: You know we're, we're trying to put humanity into four boxes right so in the beginning but we very we don't believe in type we start, we start there that this structure pattern is your preference and it's where you like to hang out but you can also go to two of the other patterns really easily and we call that agility so mm-hmm. and that happens very quickly very naturally and you know you can move to impact you can move to clarity those are your two allies, you know, so those, if you read those reports, they'd feel pretty familiar too, but the the, the stretch edge is your opposite tilt, mm. and that is the person who's kind of decided everything the opposite of you. What's beautiful about the, you know, the natural development process of, of our um, human psyche is that we often are attracted to people that are really different from us. So mm-hmm. we often marry them, we have partners, we have best friends, you know, they keep us straight, right? Right. And so I'm sure you have friends that are connection tilt the cross pollinator, mm-hmm. which is, you know, your social more of your social networker uh, who knows everyone. Yes. <laughs> and is constantly persuading and kind of shape shifting, you know, to the situation and you know, that might to a structure person feel like that person doesn't have any integrity. I don't know who they are. They change, but that person kind of defines work as relationship building. Yeah. And they, and they like to avoid tasks and doing things efficiently. So we're kind of the nemesis of the opposite, but because we're attracted to them, I think we naturally become more like them. If we have someone in our life that is that opposite pattern, and we only need to be like ten percent more like that, in order for us to not over rely on our preferred pattern. So, so it's basically a framework that's visual that helps people not only remember their type. Like I found that with Myers Briggs and others that use uh, letters and so and you know kind of obscure uh, labels, it's hard to remember. So you don't apply it.
11: We just, as humans, we don't like change. We don't like different and it starts out very, very early. This is a huge generalization because there's always going to be people who just like very adventurous, the bleeding edge, early adopter people. Yeah. And then the people who are just like, I like my typewriter. I don't ever want to change, mm-hmm. but it really depends on how close the change will impact us or how closely we perceive it is. So going back to your, oh, we've got a new system implementation that's coming out. It's the historical basis for that. So how many times have they rolled something out and it just failed spectacularly? And how many times have they rolled something out and then it ended up being something completely different? Mm. It's having that trust and that consistency and and actually transparency around it. So if I send you an email from human resources and I'm like, good news on our insurance, like. What that means is they're changing our insurance (laughs) and that is not good news for me, probably. So just being really transparent about what the change entails and what it doesn't and having those communication channels open. Absolutely.
0: So trust, consistency, transparency. That's so important. Love that. On your LinkedIn and, you know, for people that don't know, I do a lot of research on our guests before they come on the show. You talk about your superpower. Will you share what that is with our audience? And then how do we tap into our own superpower?
11: So it's interesting because the first time somebody ever asked me is like, what's your superpower? I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Like, and I immediately went to what my favorite, you know, Batman, it's my superheroes. But it, it really took me a long, I had taken a writer's retreat. So I just hold myself up away for four or five days and just got really deep into the value statements of the work that I do and why, why do I do this? And I realized that my superpower is and has always been probably that I am a trusted guide and I can help people see what's possible and I can help lead them through whatever they need to get through Mm -hmm. to get to what's possible. Mm
12: -hmm.
11: And it it sounds very esoteric or I I don't know what the right word is, but that's really what it is. I can see a traffic in what's possible Mm -hmm. and does it mean that it's you know, unrealistic. It, it means that it's very optimistically pragmatic.
0: So often, you know, our natural instinct is to protect ourselves, right? Especially in the workplace. Yeah. And we we shrink back, but really, if we're thinking about not only ourselves, yes, but those that we're representing, those that right. we're that we're fighting for. You know this next generation. Absolutely it's important right. that we step up and and make these these statements and draw yeah. these lines. I, I love I mean, that. If
4: we can, if we can do it, we have to. Absolutely. Um, yeah, that's absolutely the case. There's a lot of people that reach out to me and say yeah. things like, "Thank you for being yourself. Thank you for doing this," because I wouldn't know how to do it if I were, you know, if I had to do it. And it's like, well. I lived this life. I came up this way. I did like so many years of therapy to make myself this. So if this helps you, awesome. I'm really excited for that. So, I mean, this is just me becoming who I've always been, I guess.
0: I love it. And yeah. and one more question on this topic, just for yeah. those listening, when we step up and, and draw these lines and, and, do our best to educate people on on where they're missing the mark and where they've got it wrong, right? Mm-hmm. What do you recommend that we do or say? Because it's very important in how we approach people, whether they're going to be able to receive it or not. And certainly we can't say that everyone will because they won't. No. You know, there, there are a right. lot of things that come with, with everyone, right? With everyone. So, but what are some of the ways that we can do our best to make sure that we're educating people in the right way.
4: So, do we mean we as people who are being impacted, or do we mean we as people who are in the HR space or the people space and want to make sure that people are feeling included? So, those are two different questions. Absolutely. So, when people come to me and they are being impacted by these things and they are BIPOC or or women or or anything, right? Mm -hmm. When people come to me and they say, "What can I do to make my employer understand these issues?" It's like, oh my god, that's always the worst position to be in. I don't want to teach you. how to teach them, I want to teach them how to include you like that's a different thing. I don't feel like it is the responsibility of BIPOC people to do this work. Mm -hmm. It drives me. I don't want to cuss on your thing. It drives me crazy. Do you know what I mean? Like it drives me crazy when people gatekeep around that, because Mm -hmm. in my mind like black women specifically should be driving us forward about how we're going to be inclusive on bigger things. This stuff right here is level one stuff. The stuff I talk about is level one stuff. Like I'm I'm guarding the gates of hell here. Y'all go this way and do the real work while I stand here and and teach people, you know, not quite sharing, but like the next level inclusion, right? So it's, for me, I always, I always feel terrible when I see people say, well, how do I how do, I do this? Because it's just more of the same systems. It's you taking on that responsibility because you're the only one being impacted by it. And I think that's garbage. And I hate seeing companies who say, oh, we're so proud of our inclusion when I've got employees in there saying, how do I teach this stuff to my boss? So that's mm-hmm. position one. Second thing, if you are leading a team or you're leading a company or anything like that, there are thousands of things that you can do any minute person to person, individually or on the company level at every single level of the employment cycle that can help people feel more included, all kinds of people. So, I mean, I wrote a book, like, let me help you include people, but stop putting it on the people who are being marginalized by it already. That's the stuff that drives me crazy. Okay.
0: I love that. Oh my (laughs) goodness. Wow. 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 I love that. That's it's so important. Right. Because so, so often, right. And then, you know, my question was, how do we help people understand us better? And you're like, no, that's not the way we approach it. I love that. Thank you.
5: I also have on the other side, you know, a number of people in the VC space, which is, you know, primarily, run by white men. Mm-hmm. And but I'll, you know, even a lot of our local VCs I'll meet with them and they would like to have, you know, a stronger pipeline of diverse entrepreneurs and they're there, but it's like, okay, so how do we want get those connected? Yes. And it takes intentionality. It takes time. It takes investment in relationship building. So I think that's how do you form relationships between the ecosystems and the VCs and also how do you do that work internal to VCs to make sure that if you, if there's, you know, Jackie, if you're going and raising money, do you want money from that VC and are they a good partner for you? Right. And so I think that goes back to who are the people within their mentor network and who are they supporting and who are their LPs and what are the types of things that they value investing in and all of those things. So I think there's internal work that the VCs need to do as well as you know, work and investment in ecosystem development to support Black women founders? And then also, how do we provide those bridges in between? And I think highlighting the fact that there are these needs and giving people ways to get engaged and involved is really important. And for people to be able to raise their hand and say, yes, I want to do that. I see a lot of people one of the terms that, that Rodney used where, uh, in his Juneteenth event, I really loved. He was like, there's allies that are like on the sidelines cheering us on. He's like, and I love that. We, uh, we want allies, right? But he's like, there's also co-conspirators. He's like, I would like to see more co-conspirators, which is they're people who are going to create something together to, to benefit, you know, black and brown men and women, right? He's like, and then there's accomplices that we can not only work together or write a check or something like that, right? So uh, co-conspirators, sign up with your checkbook, sign up with your time, let's dig in, right? Mm -hmm. Accomplices are, how can we create something new together to actually benefit different groups? You
0: were the first out transgender bride to be to appear on the show, Say Yes to the Dress Atlanta. How was that experience for you?
12: It was such a great experience. It was a dream come true. So I didn't reach out to them. They originally reached out to me Uh and I had the opportunity to actually go on either of the franchises. I could have gone to Kleinfeld in New York or I could have gone to Us by Lori, which I ultimately chose. Mm-hmm. It was such a, a dream come true it was actually overwhelming <laughs> because there were so many choices. obviously yeah. folks saw the show <laughs> know that I ultimately did not pick one of the dresses that was there. I had a, a, a dress custom made for me which was such a, a life moment to have my my wedding dress, my wedding gown to have it custom made a, a couture piece for my my Cinderella wedding. Yeah. it was absolutely humble. And one of the things that I loved about filming it is Lori and Monty, the, the host of the show, right. they were so in tune to the sensitivity of the moment. There was, there was nothing different about my experience because I was a trans woman. Wow. I was a trans woman shopping for her wedding dress it was a life moment. And, and for me, it was about finding the best dress that fit me. And that's the thing that I loved about it, that there was nothing extra or anything different about that appointment. And it was absolutely affirmational and, and I'm so glad that I did it. That's why Miles and I went on the show, you know, mm-hmm. to show that trans love is a, a possibility.
0: As you've heard, we've had some amazing guests join us for some very important conversations. And I'm so excited for you to hear what's in store for season five. And if you haven't already, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to Diversity Beyond the Checkbox so you'll be notified when we come back. Until then, be sure to visit thediversitymovement.com for more podcasts, articles, and educational content. This episode was edited and produced by EarFluence. I'm Jackie Ferguson, and I'll talk with you next time on Diversity Beyond the Checkbox.